Hi everyone, thank you for joining us on Eagle Eye today. Every week we have exclusive interviews with your favorite BC student athletes, professors, alumni, and more. Make sure to follow The Heights on Instagram and Facebook to recommend guests you'd like to hear from. You can catch up on the latest headlines on The Heights Facebook and Twitter pages every Monday. Today's exciting news, we have a special guest, Lisa Smith, a veteran from the United States Air Force and the city councilor for Arvada, Colorado, with a focus on housing and multimodal transportation, uh, who graduated from the Boston College School of Social Work in 2018. She recently spent two weeks helping Ukrainian refugees evacuate into Poland, is here to talk about her experiences from the trip today. Uh, thank you for joining me, Lisa. Yes, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Um, so first off, um, what made you decide to travel to Poland in the first place? Sure. I was in the military for a couple of years and was security forces there. And during that time, you felt a sense of kind of camaraderie, purpose, and a lot of veterans struggle with that when they transition out of the military. So one of the things that I looked for was an organization to be a part of that would help find that purpose again. And that was with Team Rubicon. When I was working with Team Rubicon and volunteering with them, I would deploy a couple places, some internationally, some local that were humanitarian and disaster focused. So one of the trips that I went to went on was to Greece to help with refugees. And that was really just life altering, very eye opening. And so when the uh, crisis kicked off and the war kicked off in Ukraine, I was looking at ways to plug in and support and kind of use my experience and background to support some of the people in, in Ukraine that were really struggling. And so I ended up connecting with the co-founder of Team Rubicon, Will McNulty, who launched something called Operation White Stork. And the entire intent for that was to um, bring medical supplies in and refugees out. So. I thought that would be a really great way for me to contribute some of my skills and resources to to helping the people. So although I didn't have a direct connection to Ukraine, other than a couple of friends that had lived there, I felt that this was a, a calling and a need to to come and, and help other people that were in crisis. Yeah, that's really great. Um, from from the very little I know, um, all the refugee kind of relocation efforts are, are pretty solely based on like volunteer efforts. So. Um, that kind of work is is so important now. Um, I agree. But- I, th- I think that one of the things that's really interesting was when you hear of the need for refugees uh, that were coming or people that were being evacuated in those first few weeks that you you're on the ground, systems and processes aren't set up, right? The Red Cross is coming, but they are very large and bureaucratic. So you have to have nimble organizations that can come in and, and really get on the ground and, and work hard while those formal processes are getting started. Right. Um, and yeah, you talked about kind of your role briefly, but what was kind of the main action that you you participated in, um, your role kind of in those assisting efforts? Yeah, like you had said before, it is very grassroots. And, and at the beginning, you have to kind of piece together, it's almost like this crisis puzzle that you're putting together to figure out where are the highest needs, what are the most immediate needs. You know, Ukrainians are going to be struggling for years, if not decades, with a lot of mental health and trauma, but maybe that's not the immediate need. The immediate need is that safety, that housing, that shelter, that food. So when I got to Krakow, we flew in, and what was fascinating there was that flight in, I connected in Germany, and that flight in was mostly filled completely 
with humanitarian workers. I mean, there are people from all over the world coming in to help and, and plugging in where they could. So one of the things that you struggle with when you get on the ground is there's so much need, you don't know where to start. And so it's really important to have a certain kind of work stream, so to speak. And for us, that was getting medical supplies to the front lines. And then when we would leave, since we had an empty van of stuff, of, uh, of, an empty van to use to transport, we would pick up refugees on the way out. So we would work on collecting medical supplies that were urgently needed, bringing that to a handoff point. We would hand that off to people that were more badass than me that would keep going further um, into Ukraine and getting those resources and supplies. Um, from there, we would then go to the local train station, which was Kind of a central area in which all of the people trying to evacuate would would go to and we would go there with our van and say hey we have seven eight nine spots for for families or for people and they would make an announcement and people that wanted to wanted to flee would come and we would take them um, as many as we could and cross the border uh, with the van right yeah and it sounds like the vans were never empty there's always either people going one way or supplies going the other way so it, it was it was quite fascinating to see um when we got to the train station there were people with buses people with vans that might have not been um formally with an organization but just there to help you know one uh, couple was there next to us with a van and they were from scotland and they just drove to to help and they didn't have any connection they just felt the need to help and, and it's really impressive to see the the scale of people across the globe helping right yeah that it's so such a great thing and especially because there are so many refugees kind of crossing or attempting to cross the border um i read i think nearly twenty five thousand are crossing every day pretty much with like a maximum of, of like over a hundred thousand back in early march um what was it kind of like processing so such a large amount of people um kind of on a daily basis yeah the the amount of people wanting to flee was overwhelming and it it really is a gut check when you get to that train station and you look around and you see all these people with just one backpack or maybe two backpacks and a, a roller bag which was their life they left their home completely you saw people with pet carriers with their cats or a dog and just trying to, to flee to safety. So when you would make that announcement, say I have um, seven spots and I'm going to Krakow, the, the amount of people that would come was more than you could, you could take. And it was this very awkward and uncomfortable position to be put in and in which you have 20 people and you have to pick these people who can get in the van and who has to wait. And in that day that the first day that I was there, um, a bomb had hit that city just about a mile and a half away and it increased this urgency and a little bit of this chaos and, and it's just such a gut check to to have to say you can come with me here i'm sorry I don't have any space and and that's you know really, really tough to to process and to deal with and then when you get to the the border there's a, a bunch of different borders that you can cross um, at the Poland Ukrainian border and the lines were endless you would just see miles of cars you would see miles of buses and vans 
and then they'd have different lines, you know, or these humanitarian buses or these diplomatic, or, you know, and so it was just chaos. And then you would have people um, that had walked there or had hitchhiked or had somehow had gotten there on foot that were being processed. And one of the most moving things I recall seeing while we were waiting, you know, hours to process through was when you would get to the border, a person would get to the border the border guards would actually take the roller bag from that Ukrainian person and walk with them and help them with their luggage. And it was just a powerful thing to see, even if it was a hundred feet that they were showing support or here for you. And that, you know, you don't see often you look at the border guard who's tough and he's got his weapons and he's got his camo. And then you see him with an older person rolling the bag across the border. And I think that's just a really powerful statement of solidarity and, and support, but um, it, it certainly is tough when there isn't enough room. Right. I, I'm sure it was such like an emotional kind of scene, especially especially like every day, it just never stops. I, I think one thing that goes unnoticed is that there's so many people that are going out, they're leaving Ukraine, but one of the times going in, uh, with our medical supplies, there were two guys on the side of the road trying to get into Ukraine. And they were Ukrainian men, they were older, you know, at least in their 70s, and I would say not in their prime fighting condition. And I stopped and I asked them with our translator, what are, what are you doing? Why are you um, coming in? And they said, we're gonna fight. And I thought, this is insane. These people are older. One of them had a cat on his shoulder. And I said, well, you know, what are you gonna do with the cat? And he said, the cat's gonna fight. And just to see that kind of energy of, of people that could be safe in, in France or in Germany, but instead are hitchhiking their way back in to fight. And, and that kind of dedication and passion to freedom and, and their country was just really humbling. And I think you see so many images of people leaving, but there's a lot of people also that are coming in trying to help both humanitarian and also um, residents of Ukraine. Right. Yeah, that, that's actually really interesting. I'm, I'm sure there was such a, a wide range of kind of demographics and reasons why people were relocating. And um, that, yeah, that's funny about the two 70 year olds. I wouldn't imagine that just by picturing it. But yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess like you mentioned a little bit, but what were the kind of interactions that you had, um, say, with individuals or families along the way um, that kind of stuck out to you? when when you go to some of these refugee areas where there's a, a lot of people evacuating um, because you know we weren't decked out in red cross gear or any of those really big large known uh, entities there's a little bit of of uh, push and pull of their emotions where they're putting their life in your hands and they don't know who you are and you're not tied to an organization that that's been vetted and so you're seeing these people and you, it's often mothers or grandmothers with kids that are leaving and they're not sure if they should go in this van, you know, where's this going to take me. There is an ungodly amount of trafficking happening. There are people that take advantage of these situations, show up with a van or a bus and, and they're gone. You never see these women again. And it's, it's terrifying to imagine that they're going through everything they're so close to the border and then they just get trafficked and and i think that that is an underreported issue that happens in these kind of crises across the globe so you know when you 
initially meet them, they are very uncomfortable. They're not sure if they should go with you. And, and when they do say, yes, I'll, I'll go with you, you know, the other option is to go home and they don't even know if their home is still there. And so they choose to go with you and it's very tense and it's a couple hours to get to the border and no one's really talking. Uh, there's just silence. There's this unknown variable, like, are we going to get to that border? And then when you reach the border and you're in line trying to cross, uh, they start to, to loosen up. They start to get a little more comfortable. They start sharing some of their stories. Um, one of the refugees I had spoken with in the van was saying that uh, she had two dogs and her mother, and she had a 90-something-year-old grandmother who refused to leave. And they had to process that, you know, should we drag her and bring her to the border or should we respect that she wants to stay here in her home? Um, and just imagining what that emotional toll is like that you're leaving your 90 something year old grandmother behind or yet some people had to leave their their kids. Um, so once they get to the border, they start to open up, start to talk. Once we cross the border, they had what we called reception centers and that were basically old shopping malls that were retrofitted into um, kind of a triage where they would go spend the night um, and you would walk into these buildings and what was really interesting was they would have flags all around these shopping centers and so let's say it was the French flag people that were trying to go to France would go over to that French flag and say okay there's uh, a bus leaving tomorrow or there's this group leaving tomorrow um here's some nonprofits that we've connected with and so it was a really impressive um, establishment that had a plethora of resources and you think of a refugee place where they're spending a lot of time it was one maybe two nights and then they'd move on to their next um their next journey so once they got there there was relief there was you know almost this feeling this weight going off of uh, of them and I recall one lady asking to take a picture with us. And I, I have no idea where she went or how she is right now, but she has this picture of us. And she just was saying how grateful she was that the stranger had helped. And so I'm very curious. I wish I could have kept in touch with her and, and see where she went. But uh, I think that there's a level of excitement once they get there. But I don't think that it's long lived because that's just one step of a very long journey. Right. Yeah, I, I know. I mean, I couldn't imagine, but I, I could only kind of hear from what you're saying is that like the process was so long and especially with like the language barrier and all the unknowns that, um, yeah, it, it could just make it so much more confusing. Um, and especially I know you mentioned it a little bit, but um, when refugees eventually did get to Poland, what kind of, um, you know, things could they expect upon getting there? I know, um, like, briefly, the um, Ukrainian kind of government has, like, agreed with Poland to kind of establish some kind of sanctuary-like rights for Ukrainian refugees, but on a kind of general basis for so many of them, what, what can kind of be expected? Um, for living situations, say schools, work, all of that? It's completely different for each country. I think Poland is really bearing the brunt of it and has been very open, very um, supportive. Every night uh, in Krakow, the city center, there would be protests and demonstrations uh, of 
of trying to help and show that people are welcome here. Um, at the beginning, when I had gotten there, it was in March, uh, there were so many small organizations and small little hubs that it was almost this word of mouth of, oh, if you need this, go here. If you need this, go here. Um, it, was, it was really interesting. Sometimes we would go to a bar and just have a drink at the end of the day and meet up with another humanitarian worker who is doing something else and said, oh, well, let's connect you here. And so it was very much a, this internal connection and system uh, to, to help support a lot of the Ukrainians. We had Operation White Stork had partnered with Airbnb.org, which is the foundation of Airbnb, to provide one month of free lodging to anyone that's fleeing. And that was a really great program. So as they were leaving the and crossing the border, they would apply and within 48 hours, they would get a voucher and they could take that uh, to find a place on Airbnb. And Airbnb Foundation was paying that month. So the host wasn't losing money either. So that was a really cool organization partnership. Um, but I'll say it's dwindled, you know, months have gone by people just assume that this is part of the normal rotation of news when you hear oh there's another attack in the city and this is happening it's almost like we've become accustomed to you know hearing this and it's not as much of a shock factor so a lot of those programs have dried up a lot of that has um, become less supportive less funded so um, i'd be curious to go back to krakow and, and see what it looks like now um, but even in those downtown areas, there were pop-up tents with World Central Kitchen and, you know, a place that you could get food, um, shoes, clothes, anything. So there was a lot of those resources at, at the beginning, but I imagine probably the more established places are where you're going to be going now. Yeah, it, it's, it's especially tough because, I mean, maybe a lot of refugees are looking for kind of a temporary spot to stay, but that could, you know, very obviously in, in how permanent it is based on the war. Uh, yeah, I would, I would even, I would even say that while I, I appreciate Airbnb's gesture of that one month, well, this war is going on for more than a month. So after that one month is done, then what, you know, and, and to be getting those emails, to be getting those panicked calls from people saying, my month is up, I have nowhere to go. Can we please extend? And having to say no is, is, is heartbreaking. And, you know, you wish that you could do more. You wish you could have this unlimited funding, but there is a level of what you can do and can't do. And um, that, can, that can also be very tough. Right, yeah. And I guess kind of flipping it back on, on your side, on the volunteer side, did you kind of notice a lot of volunteers experiencing that same kind of burnout? Like, oh, this has been going on too long. I've done my part. Now it's time for, for me to leave or for me to stop, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's very easy to be part of an organization and want to stay there forever. And you can't, right? You have your life, your home, your relationship, your job. Um, so it's, it's very hard to, to say no um, when all these people are. And, and it almost feels like you know, how spoiled are you that you can choose to leave, that you can go home and, and you feel a little bit of guilt there. Um, so I think a lot of people struggle with that. Luckily, organizations have great rotations. So you can do two weeks, you can do a month and then rotate through. 
Um, and that helps with the burnout because it is, it is exhausting and it's never ending. Yeah, I, I could only imagine. <laughs> I keep saying it, but I, I obviously can't, can't imagine what exactly um, workers and refugees are going through. But um, I guess to, to end off, I mean, um, coming back to the United States now after the trip, what are kind of some of the things you've processed or, or maybe viewed differently um, about the situation uh, in general? I almost had whiplash coming back home where I had just been elected to city council. I had just started this new job with the state of Colorado doing Medicaid policy, doing some housing work. And then I jump over to Poland and Ukraine and it's this chaos, it's immediate, you know, get people here, get this stuff here. And then I get back to Arvada, which is great. Arvada is doing very well. You know, we have, low unemployment, we have great streets and sidewalks in an old town. And to plug back in with the residents saying, I'm upset about X, I'm upset about Y. It was really hard for me to empathize again. I, I was a little fired up saying in my head, you know, your life is great. What's the problem here? So that was really challenging. Right, yeah, there, it's totally changing worlds, but um, yeah. It, Thank you for all the work that you've done and it's extremely important and, um, you know, hopefully things, things kind of clear up eventually, but we'll see for now. I agree. But, um, yeah, that's, that's all the questions I have. So, um, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. Of course. Anytime. Thanks for having me and letting me share that story. I appreciate it. Of course. Yeah.